0: So good to be here. So good to be here. We were here last week and we just loved it. Just such a good atmosphere, isn't there? Yeah. I had this bizarre encounter last week um, when we were here. I met Matt Reed's mum and dad, and as we were chatting, we discovered that Matt and I went to the same village school 20 decades apart. 20 oh! <laughs> 20 decades, oh dear, that does. Ha. I cover my greys well. <laughs> 20 years, two decades apart, how about that? Amazing. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Fran. I belong to Jonathan. He belongs to me. Um, we're in our invited series. I tend to notice random things. And one of the things I've noticed about this series is that it's all about food. Anybody else know? Yeah, James noticed. James noticed. So we had uh, John Groves talking initially about the wedding banquet. Then we had Steve Lee talking about the long table. And then we had Steve Chick uh, last week talking about uh, Matthew's great celebration, his big party. And so now it's my turn. Jonathan and I love food. And uh, we especially enjoy sitting around a kitchen table sharing a good meal with friends. I think food was very important to Jesus too. So much so that one of his greatest invitations to us was for us to dine with him. So he said, "'Look, I stand at the door and knock. "'If you hear my voice and open the door, "'I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends.'" Why does he use that image, I wonder? Well, I think it's because eating together is one of the most intimate things we can do as friends. Eating together is often how family and community are expressed. Friends around a table, laughing and talking and simply enjoying being together. Some of my happiest moments have been just that, around a dining table. Sadly, in our culture, it's become less of a thing but you've only got to go to France or Spain or India to find that this, uh, this is very much still alive. I think that Jesus would have known that. Um, he would have been used to that. You see, it's not just about a very English cup of tea. <laughs> Jesus, coming from the Jewish culture, would have known that if someone popped into your home, you fed them. And uh, I think that with this invitation, he's revealing his desire to enter into the kitchen of our lives, the hub of the house, if you like, to sit in the midst of our chaos and mess and do life with us. He's revealing his desire for deep and intimate friendship with his followers. So my title today is Friends, Not Slaves. Just take a moment and just listen to this. You are invited... To be friends of God, you are invited to be friends of God. What an amazing thing! You know, um, very few Bible, uh, very few Bibles, very few people in the Bible had that privilege. Very few people in the Bible are named as friends of God. One of those people is Abraham. And you can find that in the Old Testament. The other one in the Old Testament is Moses. So we have this in Exodus 33, verse 11. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So I suspect that most of us, myself included, find it quite hard to really accept that God wants our friendship. Hard to know how do we be a friend of God. We struggle to really get hold of this invitation. The first step, of course, is accepting that initial invitation by opening our hearts, opening the door of our hearts to let Jesus come into our lives and our hearts receive salvation. If this is something that any of you haven't already done, then what I hope you'll get from from what I've got to say today is that following Jesus is not about a list of rules. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about living up to a perfect standard. God is not a harsh taskmaster. It's about a loving relationship with Jesus and through him with God the Father. So for those of us who have opened the door and invited Jesus to come in, the challenge is allowing him full access In the home of our lives, allowing Him to go into every room, opening every room to Him, doing every day with Him, growing in intimacy with Him, that can come harder to us. It seems God always wanted this close relationship, this friendship with His people. We're given a glimpse of that right from the very start when we learn that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, that there was nothing hidden in that relationship until the fall. And at that point, we see that Adam and Eve were ashamed and had to cover themselves. We do the same, don't we? We cover ourselves. We fear what God might uncover in us. We can feel ashamed, and so we settle him in the nice, tidy lounge while we disappear into the kitchen of our lives to deal with the mess. I'm going to just run that past you one more time. We settle him in the nice tidy lounge of our lives while we disappear into the kitchen of our lives to deal with the mess. Our story today is all about a woman who did just that. She disappeared into her kitchen whilst Jesus was sitting in her lounge. So we're going to read from Luke 10 verses 38 to 42. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I'd like you to just picture the scene, a very domestic one, one that we probably all recognize. There's evidence to suggest that this was a well-to-do house in a little village just outside Jerusalem. It was owned and efficiently run by Martha, who was clearly a capable and organized, most probably unmarried woman. She lived with her sister Mary and her younger brother Lazarus. They are likely known in the town, this little family, as good-hearted, generous, hospitable folk who care for the poor and the sick and who take on pilgrims traveling along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're getting a bit of a picture so Martha is sweeping the courtyard and in runs this messenger and he starts to, to to call at her. I know, gospel according to Fran, but just bear with me for a moment. Use your imaginations. So in comes this messenger and he says, Jesus is on his way. He's going to pop in. He's got his friends with him. So Martha drops her, her sweeping brush, grabs her shopping bag, dashes off to Asda, does a, a good old shop all the stuff on her list that she knows Jesus loves. And while she's walking around the shop, ticking off her list, she's thinking to herself, I wonder how many he's going to bring with him this time. Last time it was 12, but I gather he's got 72 hanging with him now. <laughs> so she, um, we know from the Gospels that, that Jesus visited this home more than once. So she's been quite used to the fact that he's likely to pop in, and uh, I wonder really whether, you know, she, she was used to the fact that he popped in with his friends. Now, if it was the 72, and it's possible it was, just imagine that lot landing on you. Just imagine that lot landing on you after they've been sent out, and they've seen these amazing things happening. They've seen... People delivered of demons. They've seen people healed from the sick. They're hyper-excited. They're talking all at once. They're dusty. They're hot. They need their feet washed, somewhere to rest, food of course, a flurry of activity and preparations. Martha calls to Mary and Lazarus to tidy up a bit around the house. She sets to in the kitchen expecting Mary to join her at any moment. With excitement, the visitors arrive, feet are washed, coats are taken, drinks are offered. They're settled in the public space of their home. Martha gives Mary a look, nods towards the kitchen, and heads off to get on. Time passes, and no Mary. Martha's stirring the pots. She leans her head around the corner. She can see Mary sitting amongst the men at Jesus' feet. Now, the fact that she's sitting amongst the men is bad enough. But at Jesus' feet, Mary is flouting all the traditions of her day. And this would have been shocking to all present, totally inappropriate, and frankly, an embarrassment. By this time, Jesus would have had a reputation as a teacher and a a rabbi with many followers. And at that time, if you wanted to study, to learn, you would become an apprentice to a rabbi. So you would live life with him, you'd follow him, you would observe him, you would listen to him, and this was what was known as sitting at the feet. So essentially this is what she's doing, and it was forbidden for women to sit at the feet of a Jewish rabbi at that time. <coughs> the culture of the day would have dictated that Mary's place was in the kitchen. Um, and Martha, there she is, so she's trying to catch Mary's eye, She frowns. She gives her a hard Paddington stare. Mary is totally oblivious, enthralled, captivated by what she's seeing and what she's hearing. So Martha tries another tactic. She starts to clatter about in the kitchen. She's banging the pots and pans. She's making her displeasure felt. Still no Mary. Martha is hot and bothered now. Eager to serve up a delicious meal to her guests, peeling, chopping, stirring. She's still got the flatbreads to make, the table to lay. Her frustration is boiling over along with the pans. Finally, she bangs down her wooden spoon. She flounces out into, the, uh, into the, the sitting room in a cloud of steam, storms into the living space, interrupts proceedings, and in an outburst directed at Jesus, she draws attention to herself. And she says, Jesus, don't you care that I'm slaving away in the kitchen, doing all this, and Mary hasn't lifted a finger to help me? Tell her she should be back in the kitchen where she belongs. Awkward. Martha fully expects that Jesus will side with her and convention and command Mary into the kitchen, as would be seemly and proper. But to her surprise, he doesn't. Instead, he gently turns his rebuke in Martha's direction. It's a loving rebuke. Martha, Martha, you are needlessly worried and upset and distracted. Mary has chosen something better, and I'm not going to ask her to give it up. In other words, she's staying. We're not told what happened next. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall. Do you think Martha threw down her tea towel outraged and flounced off in a sulk? Or did she go back and turn down the heat on the pans so that she could slip back and quietly sit down with Mary to see what this better thing was? Or did she go back into the kitchen with a different attitude and continue to cook and serve but with a different heart? We don't know, but we do know that her, her next recorded encounter with Jesus, her heart was different. Something had changed between the first encounter and the second. We know this because she makes this incredible statement the second time. It's recorded in John 11:27. She says this, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. So what has changed between the first time and the second time? Well, I think that what we'll see is that Martha went from being a slave to being a friend. John 11 tells us that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He comes to their house because he loves to be there with them. He values them and their hospitality. It's one of the few places he can go to relax. So... It's likely that this was a second home to him. It doesn't sound as though he went home to his, his, his family very much. I think that Martha came to realize the wonder of that. I think she came to understand that Jesus wasn't just a celebrity preacher, but that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that God himself chose to come into her home to eat with her family, kick off his sandals, Make himself at home, in her home. And that he didn't expect anything more from her that, than that she'd just be with him. Her eyes have been opened to see who Jesus really is. She's had a revelation, an encounter. That's what we need, isn't it? Quite often, we need a revelation, an encounter like that. I suspect that knowing who Jesus was meant she understood better who she was. And she understood how extraordinary it was that this man, who was God, called her his friend. The popular caricature of Mary and Martha story presents Mary as this quiet, contemplative personality and Martha as the busy, practical one. And the popular interpretation gives Martha a hard time. I feel for Martha because I very often think I'm a bit like that. I get anxious, I get upset, I get distracted by the many things, but my heart is also drawn by Mary. I want those times when I'm just sitting at the feet of Jesus, gazing at him, enjoying his presence, and allowing who he really is just to capture me. You see, my identity is caught up in his identity. When I understand more about who he is, then I understand more about who I am. Friendship is about knowing. It's about knowing God, knowing Jesus, knowing the Holy Spirit, personally. And knowing who I am in Christ comes out of that. Good point at which to just plug the Freedom in Christ course. If you haven't done the Freedom in Christ course, I would recommend it as a place where you can really learn who God is, who Jesus is, who Holy Spirit is and who you are. I don't think Jesus was disapproving of Martha's busyness and activity in itself. I think he valued her care and attentiveness to his needs. Hospitality is a valued gift encouraged in the Bible. But as always, Jesus saw to the very heart of things. He recognized something in her busyness and activity which he exposed. In themselves, her actions, her preparations, her hospitality and her serving, all of these things were not bad things. But Jesus was interested in more than her service. He was interested in her heart. He commended Mary's choice, saying it was the better one. But why? We know we're called to action and service, right? We know that we are called to good deeds. They're purposed for us. We are called to work to advance the kingdom, aren't we? So what was it about Mary and her choice that made it the better one? Well, I, I think it's because Mary got it the right way round. It's about who we are before it's about what we do. Our desire to live lives pleasing to God is not wrong. Our readiness to serve him and others is not wrong. Our good deeds and our actions are not wrong. In fact, they're positively encouraged. But Jesus sees beneath them to the heart. And he uncovers our mindsets. The mindsets... That so often prevent us from really coming into the good of what He has for us, which is that close, intimate, soulmate friendship with Him. Friendship is about intimacy. Into me, see. Have you ever heard it put like that? Friendship is about intimacy. Into me, see. That's why we find it difficult. We're afraid, afraid of what's inside us, afraid of what God might see if we let him too close, afraid that we're unacceptable. So we scuttle into the kitchens of our busyness and service instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus to simply take him in, allow him to show us who he is, to share his heart with us, to speak with us face to face. Martha was worried, distracted and upset. In that situation, I think I would have been I suspect there might have been some resentment creeping in, a sense of injustice, unfairness about the situation. I completely get that. And in many ways, my sympathies do lie with Martha. I sometimes wonder, though, if my ready sympathy with Martha is just a reflection of the fact that I struggle with the same things she does, that I have the same mindset she had. Her anxiety, her stress, her upset they're all symptoms of a slave mindset. Her resentment, her drivenness, her eventual complaining outburst, they're all symptoms of a slave mindset. Her identity was in what she did, not in who she was. Her identity was in her doing rather than in her being. A slave's identity is in what he does. Slaves suffer from performance anxiety. They work to please their master. They can't afford to rest. They're afraid of failure, disapproval, not matching up, not attaining to the required standard. They're concerned about outward appearances. They measure success by outward output and achievement. So a slave mindset values what we are rather than who we are, doing rather than being, work rather than rest, and duty rather than devotion. Significantly, the story about Moses in the Tent of Meeting, speaking with God as a man speaks with a friend, that story comes right in the midst of the story of the Exodus, where the Israelites are being led out of a life of slavery towards the Promised Land. For years, God's chosen people have been subject to a harsh life of hard labor under a harsh taskmaster. Pharaoh, a powerful ruler... This was all they'd known of life for generations. They'd been born into slavery, grew up under slavery, and during this time of rescue, whilst Moses was speaking face-to-face with God, these now free men and women are struggling to adapt to the change. They're complaining, struggling to trust, wanting to go back to the comfort of the familiar, even back to slavery, rather than press into the freedom that awaited them. So there's a story about a woman named Harriet Tubman who was a slave in the USA in about 1820. In 1849, she escaped. And over the next decade, she became one of the country's most prominent anti-slave activists, activists helping to free many others, including her own parents. That earned her the title Black Moses. She's reputed to have said this. I freed a 1,000 slaves. I could have freed a 1,000 more if only they knew. They were slaves. Sometimes I think we're a bit like that. Sometimes I think that um, you know, we have been rescued from a life of sin and bondage, brought from darkness to life, set free from our old life, brought out of our Egypt, but we struggle to shake off the old mindset. Our identity is still in slavery, and sometimes we don't even know it. We still think like slaves, behave like slaves, even though we are no longer slaves. There's a saying, which is that you can take the slave out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the slave. Fortunately, we have a way. (laughs) Peter Scalcero, who is well known for his book, um, his books on emotional healthy spirituality, he wrote this. Sadly, many of us remain under a harsh and controlling taskmaster, a pharaoh who now lives inside our heads, telling us we can't stop or rest. The culture we live in shackles us in chains, telling us our only value is in what we achieve or produce, and that we're losers unless we accomplish more. So as long as we keep busy, we can outrun that internal voice that says, I'm not good enough, I'm not perfect enough, I'm not safe enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not holy enough, I'm not different enough, I'm just not enough. How many of us still live like us uh, live like that? How many of us, I wonder, live lives trying to maintain a standard of Christian principles and morals but struggle when it comes to experiencing the reality of close relationship with God? So Martha and Mary are like two sides of the same coin. On the one side we have doing and on the other side we have being. You can think of it rather like the wheel of a car. I don't know much about cars, but I do know there's such a thing as wheel balancing. So when you take your car to the garage, they will see whether the wheels are balanced because there's always going to be some imbalance in terms of weighting of the wheel. If the wheel isn't properly balanced, then it's going to impede your forward motion. So um, uh, what I I do know and understand about that is that if if you try to drive a car where the wheels aren't properly balanced, it results apparently in a kind of glumphing motion. That's the word I got from Google. That's what it said. It's a bit like when your washing machine is imbalanced, you know, and it spins and it makes that terrible racket uh, because all the washing is on one side of the drum. And of course, the result of that is stress, strain, damage. So I, I discovered this principle recently. I was walking my, uh, my two-year-old grandson in his buggy, pushing him along the streets in Portsmouth, and I was having such a job with this buggy. Honestly, I couldn't make it go. And uh, I noticed that one of the wheels was slightly out of balance. So I'm struggling. I must have looked like a demented old woman, honestly. This buggy had a mind of its own. It kept veering off to the left. I kept having to come back with it and carry on. (laughs) Terrible. What happened eventually, I didn't get to where I was going, because what happened eventually was the metal chassis of the buggy just sheared. It just clean sheared. It just broke in two, Uh, which brought me and Toby to a complete standstill. (laughs) You see, we are created for balance, and when we get that balance wrong, like Martha, it can cause strain and stress, which can, first and foremost, what it will do is break our connection with God. And ultimately, it can break us. How many people do you know who are suffering from stress or anxiety in our world at the moment? It's it's reaching epidemic proportions, isn't it? if we are to be friends of God, then we need to get this balance. We all need a bit of Martha and a bit of Mary. We need to balance our doing with our being. The balance comes from that place of knowing who Jesus is and knowing who I am. And that can only happen if we can learn to be with Jesus as Mary did. So when a mechanic takes a look at a wheel like that, what he actually does to counterbalance where the, the, the off-weighting is, is he puts weights in the wheel so that he's balancing the weighting of the wheel. That's right, isn't it, those of you who know about cars? I'm getting some nods. <laughs> and we need to do the same. We need to reflect upon the wheel of our life and put some balances in where there is imbalance. So we often, I mean, I think most of us actually will find that our imbalance tends to be towards the Martha side, side, tends to be towards the doing side, tends to be towards the activity side. And what we need to do is bring some balance on the Mary side. So what was it that Mary got right? What was the better thing that Mary chose? Well, I would say she chose who over what. She chose being over doing. She chose rest over work. And she chose devotion over duty. There should be a friend mindset slide there. So these are the weights, if you like, that balance balance the wheel. We've already looked at the fact that our identity is in who we are. And we've also looked at this whole thing about being overdoing. So I just want to very quickly go into rest and devotion. When I talk about rest, I'm not talking just about physical rest. I'm talking about spiritual rest. We can be resting, we can be resting our bodies, but our minds are still preoccupied. Our headspace is still in doing mode. It's true that part of who we are is what we do. God is a worker and there's no doubt he created us to find fulfilment in work. But God set a design in us that requires rest. We were created with a pause button. Even God rested, and he has infinite capacity. He rested after he had created the universe because he had a sense of satisfaction in the work he had done. We are limited. Our work, our doing, is not the deepest truth about who we are. In actual fact, we discover the deepest truth about who we are when we're prepared to enter God's presence and simply be. We're first of all human beings. When we prioritise doing over being and what we do becomes the foundation of our significance, then we are reduced to human doings. And when that happens, ceasing work or productive activity, just resting, becomes extremely difficult for us. Sometimes working for God can get in the way of our relationship with God. Work is intended to be a fulfilling partnership with God, and rest is intended to be an invitation to enjoy intimate fellowship with Him. So often, our religious or slavish mindset still is that what God wants most from us is a great sacrifice of our time, our energy, and our money. So we feel guilty if we do nothing, if we stop, if we rest. Yes, even if we take time out just to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him, just to be with him, we struggle with that thing in our head. (laughs) This is Mark DuPont in his book, Becoming a Friend of God. I wonder, are we confused about the time we spend serving God and the time we spend just being with God? Do we neglect the person of God in favor of the things of God? Are we more focused on his hand of blessing than on gazing at his face in glory as Mary did. And he goes on to say this, but this is me talking too. Maybe it's just me, but I find even in the times I spend with God in prayer, Bible reading and meditation, I'm focused more on doing than being, more on productivity than rest, what I can get from God or what I think he wants from me even, rather than simply wanting to spend time with him. Mary had chosen the better thing, being a lover of Jesus' presence. She came to understand something significant about that place of rest. Rest comes high in God's list of priorities. In Hebrews 410 to 11, we're told to work hard at not working hard. Just listen to this for a moment and get your heads around this. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort, work hard, to enter the rest, not work hard. When we stop working, stop being productive, and just allow ourselves to be with God, we recognize our dependency on him, and we acknowledge that outside of him we can do nothing. This is the place of surrender the place of rest when we know that there is nothing we can do to make him love us more or accept us more than he already does. Busyness wars against our ability to behold God, to see him, to be attentive to him, to be aware of him. Sometimes we crowd him out. We're most aware of his presence when we're at rest, when our minds are at rest, when we just stop and allow ourselves to connect with him, to see him and to listen to him. Mary was enthralled. She stopped talking, she stopped doing, she looked and she listened. When we rest, our hearts are opened just to look and listen. Devotion is concerned with the heart, while duty is concerned with outward appearances. Mary, in choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus, was prioritising her inner life As she listened to him, I think she began to understand things about him that changed her internal world, her heart. She was captivated by Jesus. There was something about him that drew her. She was with the men who'd been out with Jesus doing extraordinary things. They were learning from Jesus' show and tell. They were learning to do what he did, go where he went, say what he said, and were no doubt talking about it. I wonder whether this might actually have been the debrief for the 72. And Mary's sitting there wide-eyed, listening to them as they're sharing stories and talking about what happened, listening to Jesus' wise word, words. She abandoned peeling the potatoes to make the most of the fact that Jesus was in the house. She was learning what's in the master's heart, if you like, the internal thoughts and workings of Jesus. And he was showing them the Father's heart. So, just to wrap up, in John 15, verses 13 to 15, Jesus says this to his disciples There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the father told me jesus knew his father's heart a servant or slave doesn't have access to the inner world of the master and a master doesn't have access to the inner world of a slave but as friends we are told that the master confides in his friends hidden things are made known to friends secrets are confided between friends and God reveals his heart and his plans to his friends. Like Mary, we need to make time to see and listen to the heart of God. Less talking, more listening. The desire to listen to a friend is possibly the most distinguishing characteristic of deep friendship. God listens to us. We need to listen to him. When we do, he will reveal his heart to us. So there's a very important if in this verse. It says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Bit confusing that. It sounds like going back to a master-slave relationship again. But as friends, we obey out of devotion, not out of duty. Slaves do what they're commanded out of duty. And fear for the sake of output and achievement. Friends do what they're commanded out of devotion for the sake of the one they love. Everything we do comes from this. He laid down his life for us. We lay down our lives for him. So we have an invitation to choose friendship with the one who never rejects us, never leaves us, never disappoints us. All we have to do to access this friendship is open the doors of our hearts He wants to make his home with us, to come into the home of our hearts. When we lay down, our potato peelers, our tea towels, our wooden spoons, come out of the steamy kitchen of our busy lives and sit at the feet of Jesus, just be, that's when we really know that our works don't save us, Jesus does. When we come empty-handed, ready to let go of the I shoulds, I ought tos, I musts, that's when we realize our identity is entirely in him and what he's done. When we stop worrying about how things look on the outside and start worrying about how things look on the inside, that's when we really accept Jesus' great invitation to enter our home, to sit and eat with us, to speak with us face to face as a man speaks with a friend. If we want to be free of a slave mindset, we need to learn to cultivate intimacy with God, actively pursue his presence, maintain connection with him, abide in him, rest in him, be still and really know him.